Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Director of Digital Transformation at Winfield United, and filling in for John Zook while he's on paternity leave is Corey Evans, Technical Seed Manager for Winfield United. Corey, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Joel. We've got an exciting topic here, Corey. I think one of the biggest costs that farmers have is making a decision around seed selection. And certainly there's a number of different ways to arrive at this answer, but you're always trying to pick the newest, most elite genetics that are going to help you perform. And really the name of the game is to optimize yield. So let's go through a little bit today. You know, what do we know different in what we saw in 2019 that's going to help us into the 2020 crop year around seed selection? Yeah, absolutely. So I think to take a step back, really when you start going through the process of choosing a hybrid, it's really about do you choose the hybrid to match your management style or do you match your management style to the hybrid? And what I mean by that is imagine having a hybrid that's really stable under limited end, has a low response to fungicide, and just a proven every acre fence row to fence row hybrid. That's probably suited for you know the acres that are moderate yield environment, but it's probably suited for a management strategy that's maybe spring fertility, spring nitrogen, maybe don't have the ability to come back with a in-season side dress, maybe fungicide applications in season are, are challenging, and that probably fits more of the management strategy than it does fitting the management strategy to the hybrid. On the opposite end, imagine if you had a hybrid that had a really high response to in-season nitrogen, a really high response to fungicide, you probably want to make sure you're capable of side dressing nitrogen and spraying a fungicide to make sure that investment is going to work for your farm and your acres. Yeah, equipment plays a big role in that. When you talk about uh, selecting hybrids that have a high response to nitrogen, you know, you've got to be able to be set up with people power to be able to get all your spraying done, get all the weeds dead, and be able to get across those side dress acres before the corn gets too tall. But there's also probably sometimes where maybe you can only get a percentage of that done. And so I get performance is one of the top indicators, but you know I can also see that there's this blending of management that needs to go on as maybe you can get 30% of your fields side dressed and managed nitrogen on there. You know, it probably starts with your priorities and being realistic on what you're capable of for time. So imagine planning maybe a little bit later than you expect, especially if 22-inch rows or 20-inch rows, narrow rows, you know your time to spray your weeds and get across is really, really short. So knowing the field's maybe production capabilities, if it's a really high yield environment and you really want to chase yield, that might give you an opportunity to put a hybrid that has a higher response to nitrogen to make that application in season worth it versus maybe 60% of your fields are a little farther away from home. You don't have the labor. You don't have the capabilities of getting across it. You probably want to manage your hybrid by choosing a hybrid that has a lower response just to cover your basis. Yeah. You know, so I get really excited about the management of varieties, and I think we're going to talk more about that on some future episodes where we'll get into some of the new insights uh, that, that come out around the scores. But, you know, Corey, I think back to this last year here, and it seemed like around every corner there was uh, water, um, water, and then too much water and more water. Knowing the challenging conditions and the variability across the board, how reliable is the yield data coming out from last year? And how should farmers look at that? data to make their final decision. If you think of what yield truly is, Joel, it's a simple equation of 
yield equals genetics times environment times management. So the yield that's getting expressed this year is really a function of the environment, but the genetics and management is also a component of what you're seeing. So as I sit through, you know, plenty of data points coming out of the answer plot or inside trials, I started looking at, okay, what made sense from prior years and what was the surprises? And I think what we learned is the hybrids that we know did really well under limited end conditions, they stayed pretty true to form. When you saw the 2019 data, it was almost like it was mimicking 2018 data, especially when it came to ability to perform under nitrogen stress. On the flip side, the products that we know are racehorse hybrids that do really well under management, high yield environments, they showed up again when you push nitrogen rates and when you got in your higher yield environments. So really on the management side and the genetic side, we were able to see similarities to last year. So it totally didn't wipe out the value of 2019. I think where, where 2019's unique weather we had, you said, you know, being really wet. Also, don't forget, it was pretty cold. I think in Minnesota data, there was only three 90 degree days in the state of Minnesota in 2019. The average is almost 18. Hmm. So not only were we wet, we were cool. So that was really focusing on germplasm's ability to respond to a cooler year, but it also helped pollinate hybrids under less stress. We were wet and we were cool. So we really didn't tease out a lot of that stuff. So I think that's one thing to consider as we go towards next year is if you had hybrid perform really well, one of the things we might not have been able to see this year is how well did you pollinate under stress? Really, we haven't had extreme stress over pollination for a few years. And that could be something that we're missing in our data. Yeah. So, you know, I think about, and this is just a generalization. I've worked with a number of different farms over the years to know that the amount of new hybrids on their farm varies. And it's, it always seems to go about in a three to five year cycle. You're going to move a third of your hybrids out. You're going to move, you know, keep and grow a stable third of your hybrids. And then a third of them are going to come in maybe in, in that stable, you know, that stable portion of something that is proven last year, you're going to double that or grow that on more acres. It's really interesting to think about a hybrid this last year that you maybe had a couple trial boxes of or a couple trial bags of that you're going to grow that a little bit more. But to think, well, it hasn't really been tested in that hot, dry environment. And that's where we've tested about, what, 230 plus varieties in the answer plots this last year. And it's really about the diversification of risk. So talk to me about, do you just look at the plot winner or how do you diversify some of the risk in hybrid selection? So maybe we're lucky and maybe not so lucky, and we get a hot and dry year next year. The biggest challenge is until you can forecast when that weather is going to occur, we have to spread our risk on tassel dates and maturity. This year in our northern environments with low GDUs, of course, we're worried about actually getting the corn to finish to black layer. But the thing that's always on my mind is what's the late July, early August weather going to be when we go through pollination? I think to spread risk and minimize risk, knowing that we can't figure out when that hot, dry weather is going to occur, I think it comes through two different functions. One is choosing hybrids with different relative maturities just to spread out those dates that pollination might occur. And maybe you're not set up for pushing maturities or set up for you know going early. You want to capture yield potential. The other way you could minimize risk is selecting, let's say, a 100-day hybrid, but looking at flowering dates. 
There's some hybrids mm-hmm. that flower specifically two, three, four days earlier while they're still the same GDUs to black layer. Pollination dates are a little different. So keep the same maturity. You're looking at the same dry down, but you're going to spread risk by just changing pollination dates with an early versus late flower. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, the GDUs to flowering piece, because this last year, you know, I, I always kind of joke around that normal is just a setting on the washing machine. Okay, so in a normal year, you know, 2,200, 2,400 GDUs to black layer. But this last year, I mean, hey, I, my brother in southern Wisconsin planted some corn in June because that's when it got fit to plant, and those hybrids still finished. So what happens to a hybrid when you talk about diversifying this over planting condition? What happens when a hybrid is planted late to those GDUs? Purdue University probably gives us the best data on that. And they say for every day planted after May 1st, it takes 6.8 GDUs less to get to maturity. You go, okay, why is that? Seven GDUs, I can do the math. If it's been 30 days and it's May 30th, that's 210 GDUs less. What causes that? Well, think of how we actually calculate GDUs. It's basically an average of a high and a low with a base 50. So if you're planting, let's say, June 1st, When's the longest day of the year, Joel? Still coming up. Still coming up, right? June 21st. So three weeks from planting, you're going to experience the most amount of sunlight. So let's say you have a 86-degree day for a high and a 50-degree low on May 21st. you probably 45 minutes to an hour less sunlight than you experience a month later. When you plant into later conditions, that grand growth phase is going to be experienced over a a days where there's more sunlight, there's more time to grow, and you can start to collapse that GDU requirement to actually get to black layer. Yeah, and that also brings up, you know, that GDU being it's a heat-based measurement isn't considering solar radiation. So if you have a Canadian wildfire smogging up the environment or it's extremely cloudy, which, you know, I get all of our data on where satellite images come in and, you know, where it's been too cloudy to gather them. And even though it might be warm there, if it's cloudy, we're still not photosynthesizing. Absolutely. So I think of, you know, going through college and you sit through agronomy degrees and you focus a lot on like the nutrient input process. How much nitrogen do I need? How much phosphorus? One thing you probably don't spend a lot of time on is solar radiation. Like, what does that mean? And how does that influence photosynthesis? I just know how to manage nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So think of GDUs as how fast a corn plant runs. So the hotter it is, the warmer it is, the more GDUs accumulate, the faster the plant runs. However, solar radiation, how much sunlight you can actually capture is what drives the amount of photosynthesis you produce. So warm days, you run faster, but if you have sunny conditions, you're capturing more sunlight, more energy to produce you know, your C6, A12, O6, your photosynthesis output that can get to, you know, your final yield. You know, even after having John Zook on the show for all these years, this is the first time that somebody has uh, listed off the molecular structure of photosynthesis. You know, you got to give me a little credit. I spend all of my summers side by side with John. So yeah. he's he's rubbed off on me a little bit. You guys might be officially corn nerds. <laughs> uh, hey, so, you know, you've got access to all the answer plot data and you just got back from uh, a meeting with some other regional agronomists talking about performance. Uh, is there any standout data or any really standout hybrids just Genetics. Tell me a little bit about what's coming out in that seed selection area. So, Joel, you brought up growers putting their hybrids into buckets, right? You've got a bucket of old standby products. You've got a bucket of products that perform pretty well next year. Then you've got a bucket of products that I'm going to try that are new. 
Okay, so I look at this new component, which is what my job is focused on, is how do we choose the right genetics that are going to enter into our bag? And preliminary data says there's about a 4.2 bushel genetic gain on new hybrids versus our last year releases. Okay, so four bushels, what do you do? What's that mean? Well, I think four bushels really means how do you manage these new hybrids? One thing I've noticed is there's a much broader range of hybrid characteristics that we've launched. So some new hybrids have a, a really more workhorse feeling where they do really well on limited end, they got a lot of flex, they're these stable go everywhere products. And then there's this bucket that we launch of these really high yield, high management products. And if you're gonna choose 15% or 20% or whatever your percent ratio of this bucket of new hybrids is, I think the, the yield is there enough to incentivize that use, but it's really about how do you manage those hybrids, especially when it comes to things like response to nitrogen or response to population. Think sorting out of how do you make sure this new hybrid has a good start and minimize some of these differences we might see in weather next year, which I'm hoping it's going to be hot and dry, but we never know what it's going to be. So what I love about that is, you know, the genetic advancement, that clip continues to stay at that four and five bushels. So 4.2 bushel genetic gain by the new hybrids. But I also know, Corey, that there's some fields out there that, you know, I've run with this farm for the last 10 years, and it really only ever cranks out a below average yield. What am I supposed to do on those acres that, you know, it's it's rocky, it's, it's you know, droughty, it's too wet, too hot, too cold, or too dry, and my yield seems to not really be able to pick up that four bushel gain. What do I do on those fields? Yeah, you know, we used to have an easy answer with something we called the genetic family story, and that was historically Winfield United's go-to-market strategy on explaining how to predict a hybrid's response on a field. So basically when we were just using selective breeding to build new hybrids, we could figure out, okay, I know how this parent reacts on this environment in this field. I know how this parent reacts. So when we combine them, we could have a pretty predictable response on what they're gonna be, whether it's a management strategy or an environment. What's new is these new hybrids are going through more of a molecular assisted breeding approach. And that's a good thing, but it does produce what I would consider mutts, right? When we bring two lines together to make a hybrid, you don't really know what they're gonna do when they get out in the field. We will use CHD, our corn characterization charts, to really sort out, okay, how's it gonna perform in a low yield environment or a moderate or a high yield or certain nitrogen management strategies or different populations. So getting back to your original question that I'm avoiding of what do I do with this you know, tough acre field? I think you really gotta set your expectations on, okay, what's my associated yield with it? And if I have a new hybrid, that's gonna probably bring a higher cost to that can I capture that much more yield with it? Or do I go back to a workhorse stable hybrid that I've used for a while and you know focus on getting the investment right by managing that hybrid and taking your new high yield, this 4.2 genetic gain hybrid on your better acres to capitalize on that incentive of higher yield? Yeah, so we're talking all about seed selection here. And, you know, when you bring in high, medium, and low yield environment performers, which is something the answer plot data are, are, are really great at parsing out, sounds like you almost should be ranking your fields by yield 
capacity and seeing if you can get that yield out of that as you select that hybrid. And if that field has other limiting factors, that's a place where optimizing your ROI involves selecting that right bag, that right product for that right acre. Absolutely. So what keeps me up at night is launching a hybrid that's really high response to management. It's got you know good emergence, but not great, but it's really optimized under high nitrogen, high plant populations, high response to fungicide. And then we get a tough year like we had in 2019, and it goes on whatever field is ready, and maybe that's a lower yield environment. Maybe you got spring manure, and it's a little compacted, and we're probably not going to side dress it. Well, you probably didn't gain any advantage of yield because that hybrid wasn't built for that acre. So just starting to understand where does this acre fit and making sure that the right hybrid goes on the right acre. So the last time you were on the show with John, you had talked about seed treatments. How important is the selection of seed treatments overall when you're talking about seed selection? I'm a flowchart kind of guy, Joel. (laughs) And obviously, being the seed guy, the first selection criteria for me when I'm making a seed decision is, of course, the genetics itself, right? Is it the right genetic package that I need for my farm? The second question you would ask is, okay, does it have the right seed treatment mode of action to protect that seed from whatever I'm facing? Whether it's a weather, whether it's a fungal disease, whether it's a a nematode, or I'm looking to enhance yield with something like zinc on the seed, for example. So seed treatment is the second flow chart process that you go after choosing your seed. Seed treatments are about building an insurance policy on the seed investment that you had. Yeah, and I, I, so I think that's a great mental model to go through. I'd also add in there that, you know, a lot of those seed treatments are built for the norm of production agriculture. And if you're in a unique situation, you've turned over some sod, you might have some incremental pests, white grubs, wireworms. That's a really place, a really good place to consult your local agronomist and get a specific recommendation on that field. If you feel like you're going into a new situation that falls outside of the norm. You know, seed treatments are kind of like a bag of Skittles, right? You open up a bag of Skittles, you get all these different colors, and it kind of goes the same way with seed treatments. There's a whole bunch of different modes of actions. There's different rates. There's different formulations. I think working with a trusted advisor to just be confident and asking questions of, okay, what's the rate of the seed treatment? Is it appropriate for what I'm going after? And try to minimize some confusion on seed treatments just by asking the right questions. Yeah. You've been listening to the Deal With Yield podcast. We'll be back next week to discuss what farmers who've selected their seed can do to get the most value from their genetics. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your favorite podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.